Hello, I'm David Getson. Which civilization invented the arch? Don't be too eager to answer that one. Our common history gives a reply to that question with great confidence, but close examination reveals some things to be much older and stranger than we might expect. Take this old fable. The first five words here are famous, but the remainder leaves us with the unheimlich feeling that we have forgotten something. Or is the discomfort that we are starting to remember. You Greeks are all children, and there is no such thing as an old Greek. You are all young in mind. You have no belief rooted in old tradition. In our temples, we have preserved from earliest times a written record of any great or splendid achievement or notable event which has come to our ears, whether it occurred in your part of the world or here or anywhere else, whereas with you and others, writing and the other necessities of civilization have only just been developed. When... The periodic scourge of the deluge descends and spares none but the unlettered and uncultured, so that you have to begin again like children, in complete ignorance of what happened in our part of the world or in yours in early times. So these genealogies of your own people, which you were just recounting, are little more than children's stories. The age of our institutions is given in our sacred records as 8,000 years. You remember a single deluge only, but there were many previous ones. And this was unknown to you because for many generations the survivors of that destruction died, leaving no written word. The Egyptian priests at Sais, speaking to Solon in Plato's Timaeus. And welcome back to Fundamental Process. What is history for? Besides fascination, informing identity, or providing a hope to avoid the mistakes of the past, understanding history can help us achieve, to develop beyond the post-Diluvian children's stories, and advance into a cultural maturity. Instead of being limited to those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, I'd offer that those who examine history may one day surpass themselves. I avoid saying that one could surpass history for two reasons. In our present-day context, this reign of the Church of Progress, where the broadest abiding faith is that tomorrow will always be better than yesterday, the study of history is not needed to acquire innovation. 
as we have seen from our first episode covering the birth of the modernist architectural movement in the writings of Louis Sullivan, becoming ahistorical and focusing on the problems of the moment is sufficient to devise some solutions. But what simple innovation seldom provides is the ability to step outside oneself. Those remaining too near to the wall of the cave will become expert with shadows, but learn nothing of fire or of the sun. By identifying as closely as possible with that which is totally unfamiliar, a critical return to the self finds a mature individual enriched and transformed. To echo Nietzsche's Zarathustran sentiment, it is drawing the bowstring backwards that yields sufficient tension to shoot the arrow of longing beyond one's self. Questioning the past sparks the inner chaos that gives birth to a dancing star. Continual, critical examination of analytic history, that is, going beyond the mere retelling of narrative history's events, is required to maintain a certain golden mean. On the one hand, ossification of an unrevised historical narrative leads to a rigid, brittle civilization often convinced that it is the greatest or strongest until disruptive forces eventually dismantle it. The other extreme is a lack of historical perspective, equally becalmed, but in the doldrums of an also rigid eternal present. The past, nothing but amorphous myth and legend. An example of the limits arrived at when a sense of history is lacking is Roman engineering. The great backyard architectural laboratory they had in Greece and Egypt went largely unexamined. Even the man we expect to be an architectural historian, Vitruvius, comments that his contemporarily available volumes of commentaries on architecture have not presented the subject with well-ordered completeness. I have therefore thought that it would be a worthy and very useful thing to reduce the whole of this great art to a complete and orderly form of presentation. Yet, in a chapter on the origins of the orders, one would expect to find a story of the development of Greek columns, or at least a discussion of the various places they are found. However, exactly where we want historical accounts, Vitruvius just blankly declares his supposition that Doric is probably the oldest of the four, compares the ratios of the orders to each other, and then speculates on mythological ancestors, the gods who supposedly inspired the temple forms. This paltry account of his origins of the orders is like asking for the family tree of Augustus Caesar and 
only being told that he is believed to be descended from Venus. After all, that is what the divine Gaius Julius always said. Ancient Mediterranean culture, as compared to Chinese, Christian European, or Egyptian culture, was significantly ahistorical. Rise, fall, progress, and change were all foreign, as it was a benevolent political stasis that was studied, and by policy maintained. This is what lay under much of the staunch conservatism of Mediterranean Empire. The so-called reforms of Sulla or Diocletian were intended as a reassertion of the Republican or Antonine status quo. Even back to Alexander, the scholars in his wake were very keen on preserving Egyptian or Persian culture, and especially economy, but the historical institutions that were integral to religion in Egypt were greatly weakened by Hellenistic syncretism, and the Zoroastrians lost their foundational texts completely. Unlike Egyptian and Judaic traditions, the Olympian pantheon had no creation narrative, something Hesiod dances around when his theogony begins almost in medias race with the world pre-existing, the primordial pantheon of earth and sky already established. Plato had felt compelled to invent a metaphysical creation story from whole cloth in the Timaeus. When, after centuries of imperial rule, Roman culture slowly but surely acquired a past whose duration outgrew the journalistic efforts like Polybius on the Punic Wars or novelistic-style treatments like Plutarch's biographies, rather than deepening the historiography as the 17th through 19th centuries did with Western European traditions, the quality of late Roman historical work suffered greatly. Unlike the contrasting rigor of contemporary rabbinical movements that collected and codified old scripture and sources, the Roman effort of the Historia Augusta composed during the reigns of Diocletian and Constantine, is infamous for weakness as a historical source, and it hardly merits the excuse of a proto-Dark Age text written as it was during a time of Roman strength, of political and economic resurgence for the empire. Echoing this historiographic trend, Roman building techniques remained surprisingly unchanged through the centuries. The biggest shift from the long stretch of Republic to Empire was the early swap of opus in kertum, stucco walls with a tessellated surface of small round stones, for opus reticulatum, a stucco of diamond shapes gridded into the cement. 
Throughout Europe today, the countryside bears witness to missed opportunities from this lack of Roman innovation. The grand, triple-arched height of aqueducts as they come off of hills into lowland areas is often a symptom of the fact that there is no such thing as a curved Roman aqueduct. The water course would often be built high enough to go over or through a hill rather than around it. When used, circles and arcs were plotted to the practical limits of lengths of rope. As evidenced by the presence of curves in the Pantheon, and the lack of them in roads and waterworks. Highlighting again the missed opportunity of studying the architecture of Egypt, the calculation of large circles could have inspired much innovation. But without sufficient awareness of historical development, Without the analysis of historical narrative, such progress was laying aside. The Great Pyramid famously contains evidence of how Egypt used pi in grand engineering projects. If a circle is placed at the base of the pyramid with a circumference equal to the perimeter of the four square faces, and then the circle is rotated on side so that a perfect half-circle rises to the stone apex. The height of the pyramid is thus equal to the radius, the height of the upended circle. The angle of the sides of the pyramid is determined by the ratio of a perimeter of a circle to the radius, by pi itself. You can see how, when calculating heights and slopes over such long distances, and at such a monumental scale, plotting this arc ratio is a very elegant way to ensure that your angles and proportions come out evenly and correctly. Indeed, Pi is deeply encoded into Egyptian building going further back than the pyramids. Monuments containing blocks measured in cubits bear a pi relation to other blocks measured in a different module called a ramen. The length of one ramen is equal to the radius of a circle drawn to touch the four corners of one square cubit. Applying such modular ratios, the measures of the Great Pyramid or any other monument would lock in to these pre-established units, making blocks coming from the quarries fit evenly and exactly and lending a coherence to the whole structure worthy of Ma'at, the divine principle of balance, justice, and harmony. But circumstantial analysis of the results of Egyptian engineering, compelling as the examples are, is not the total of the evidence. We have surviving documentary confirmation that the calculation of pi was known to the Egyptians. The Rhind Papyrus, discovered in 1858, dates 
to 1550 BC, the dawn of the New Kingdom and the 18th Dynasty. Like any book of ours does today, the opening words of the papyrus note the date it was published, in the fourth month of Akhet, the inundation season of the Nile's annual flood in late summer, written down by a man named Ahmose, which was a fairly common name at the time, but tantalizingly means brother of Moses. The introduction goes on to say that it is a republication, a copy of a yet more ancient text from the 12th dynasty reign of Amenemhat III, making this document from 1550 BC an apparent facsimile of an original from about 1860 BC. The text rhetorically asks, If a pyramid is 250 cubits high, and the side of its base 360 cubits long, what length is the Seked? Seked, you might guess, is the Egyptian word for hypotenuse, and the papyrus goes on to give a version of what we call the Pythagorean theorem nearly 1,300 years before the birth of Pythagoras. The document also states that a circle's area stands to that of its circumscribing square in the ratio of 64 to 81. This brings the rind papyrus's reckoning of pi to 256 to 81 said in our familiar decimals as 3.1605. Later Babylonian tablets improved on that precision, coming closer to 3.141, with calculations yielding 3.125. However, the much earlier proportions of the Great Pyramid demonstrate yet finer precision than either of these, embodying the use of pi as an elegant ratio of 22 to 7, generating 3.142. Further evidence of advanced engineering, often ignored by history, is the Egyptian use of elliptical arches. It is commonly held that the Etruscans invented the arch, the Romans perfected it, while the Persians developed the elliptical and later parabolic arch that inspired the Gothic. But way back in the Third Dynasty of the Old Kingdom, around 2670 BC, well before the Bronze Age collapse took civilization down a peg, Pharaoh Djoser's Mastaba at Saqqara, the funerary complex designed by Imhotep, the great architect of Egypt, contained a barrel vault. A true parabolic arch inside solid brickwork is found within the 12th dynasty pyramid at Havara, 
using the shape's superior strength to reinforce the space over the burial chamber. For symbolic and religious reasons, the roof over the sarcophagus was given a pointed shape by slabs placed beneath this arch, mirroring below the pyramid's external profile above and echoing what the Egyptians called the Benben of Zep Tepi, the primordial mound of the first moment of creation, where land rose above the waters of the chaotic flood. Rome was not even founded as a city until supposedly 753 BC, but the Ramesseum in Thebes, dating to 1213 BC, has freestanding arcade barrel vaults that you can visit and walk under today. And just imagine that amidst these rich layers of civilization, a Greek in the year 600 BC would have had, at the most, just 200 years of history before the uncertain contents of the Iliad spilled out into the timeless realm of myth. Plato was acutely aware of this historical lacuna when he wrote of Egyptian priests calling the Greeks children in his dialogue Timaeus. The work was a sequel of sorts to Republic, with the cast of characters referring to the content of that dialogue as a previous discussion, stating that the day before, Socrates had spoken of the principles of the ideal state. In the ensuing discussion on that topic of statecraft, it is the re-examination of history that is argued to be crucial to building great societies and individuals. The tabula rasa exercise of republic was helpful, but not sufficient. And Timaeus involves history not only as narrative, via the notorious account of the Athenian and Egyptian war against Atlantis, but the process of analytic history and change itself is applied to improving the polis with the myth of the creation of the world and the platonic forms. Geometry itself is offered to be understood as a type of dynamic change and as having a foundation in a historicized precedent. So, as Plato has the Egyptians say, the classical Greek civilization was tiny compared to the grand sweep of Egypt. The Athenians were swimming in the kiddie pool of history. In response to the shocking awareness that Greek knowledge didn't strive to reach any further than the Iron Age, with the Greek alphabet itself going back to only 800 BC, Plato was emphasizing the need for both narrative and analytic history, dramatically framing these as central to surviving times of warfare or cataclysm. Sadly, 
the Athenian democracy that had sentenced Socrates to death did not live up to these values, and proceeded to blunder headfirst into the Peloponnesian Wars and the consequent submission to Macedonian hegemony. Of course, we like to tell ourselves that today we know better. We have technology. We don't have slaves, and our democracy is far, far away from the threat of environmental devastation or of political destruction brought on by imperialist wars. Right? The Egyptians said to Solon that while the Greek lawgiver thought there was only one great flood, there had been several. If we want to do as Plato advised, and improve our condition by studying both the narrative and analytic elements of history, a continual re-examination of the records we are given is in order. For long enough, we, as with the Greeks, have assumed that history stretches only as far back as the system of reckoning that we are familiar with. But, as the priests of Sais noted, as the recopying of the Rhind papyrus and the physical presence of great monuments demonstrates, Egypt holds manifold layers of history, indicating a past much deeper and richer than is typically understood. Our common tradition at one time had dated the earliest calculation of Pi to 250 BC with Archimedes. This episode's initial glance at Egyptian texts took that back to 1550 BC. The closer reading gave us an original publication date of 1860 BC, and the physical evidence in the Great Pyramid puts very precise working knowledge of Pi back to circa 2580 BC. And think of all the brick that Rome could have spared just by paying attention to that legacy. What additional knowledge might surface when we make a close study of other evidence that has been hidden in plain sight. But sometimes we are discouraged from even looking. To a 17th century man, an argument that use of pi was 4,160 years old would have seemed laughably preposterous. But the deciphering of early texts which refer to yet earlier traditions that end up congruent with physical evidence demonstrated otherwise. As science and archaeology have continued to pile up various discoveries in recent years, the dates by which we label certain events keep getting pushed back earlier and earlier. So, when was the real beginning of Egyptian civilization? People have often marveled at how such an advanced culture rose so rapidly in the earliest dynasties. 
So many of the hallmarks of civilization were in place even before the reign of Narmer, founder of the First Dynasty and the earliest individual we can name as ruling over both Upper and Lower Egypt circa 3150 BC. As far back as that is, the Egyptian hieroglyphics with fully developed glyphs going beyond ideograms to spell out the names of cities by representing phonemes were extant even before his reign, conclusively making hieroglyphics older than cuneiform. No longer calling those years before Narmer pre-dynastic, chagrined Egyptologists now refer to this period from about 3200 BC as Dynasty Zero. At this rate, the next generations of archaeologists may well discover Dynasty Negative Five, and pushing into the mists of time, at the boundaries of our current knowledge, close analysis of ancient texts reveals that if we put the question of origins to the Egyptians themselves, Ptolemaic historians place the founding of Egypt at the astounding point of 30,044 years ago. That is when they claim the creator god Atom who brought himself into existence, emerged as the Benben, the first land rising out of Nu, the chaotic waters of the flood. His breath caused the crying phoenix, the Ka of Ra, the solar embodiment, to fly out of the heart of the sun, the first living creature on the land. Each pyramid ever made was a monumental recreation of this first moment of water receding from the hills. And every monolith obelisk, the most basic and primordial form of symbolic architecture, actively indexing the path of sun across the earth, recalled for them that birth of the phoenix who was said to return every 500 years and be reborn in flame from his own ashes. And this story of Egypt's founding date at 30,044 years ago sounds laughably preposterous. That is, until you look a layer deeper at the geological and climactic evidence from the time just before the glaciers began to melt, when the Sahara was like a garden. The period that scientists call the Mousterian Pluvial saw heavy rain conditions across northern Africa create vast lakes and swamps that have since drained away, revealing beneath the desert rocks and that gift of the Nile, Kemet, 
the black land of Egypt. Give or take about a century for geological margin of error, this chaotic period of heavy storms and rains ended, according to scientists, 30,000 years ago. The geological emergence of the land of Egypt as we know it began exactly when the ancient wisdom traditions said it did. Join us as we brazenly sail to uncharted realms past the here-be-dragons warning ensconced by customary history and re-evaluate the narratives, reapplying analysis to discover that the chaos of precession literally births a dancing star. Next time on Fundamental Process.